Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Today, death by prescription, the opioid crisis, pills to heroin. In 2009, Darlene Schultz's 18-year-old son went to his doctor to get something for the pain for his degenerative back disease. He had just gotten a job at Home Depot and needed to control the pain so he could work. He came home with Oxycontin. After four years of trying to beat the addiction that came from this, going through jail time and immense struggles, in 2013, this same young man overdosed in his parents' bed, and despite all work by paramedics, he did not recover. This mom, along with many others, have felt the shame associated with addiction, the horrible loss of a child, and the travail of watching them walk the road of self-loathing and a struggle against a substance that controls their lives. Stay tuned today for stories from moms who have lost children, for comments from Utah's Attorney General Sean Reyes, thoughts from John Huber, the U.S. Attorney for the District of Utah, and his take on prosecuting drug offenders. And thoughts by Brian Besser, the agent in charge of the Drug Enforcement Administration of Utah, the DEA, and the Metro Narcotics Task Force. I also get some interview time with Dr. Jennifer Plum, a medical professional and tireless fighter in the opioid crisis. Stories are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. In 2017, 49,068 Americans died from opioid-related overdoses. 115 Americans die from opioids every day. From 2010 to 2016, heroin-related overdose deaths have increased 500%, and more than 80% of heroin users started their cycle of addiction with prescription drugs. In October of 2018, the Utah Solutions Summit took place. This was a coming together of law enforcement, doctors, parents, students, recovery groups, and many others for an open conversation of stemming the tide of opioid addiction and death. These interviews and stories were collected from this summit to give you, the listener, a well-rounded look at the opioid stories and things being done in our communities. I did this because I also wanted to understand it better. In this case specifically, I'm looking at the state of Utah. And the state of Utah has made tremendous progress because of the willingness of all of these parties that we're talking to today to work together. Have you wondered about the opioid crisis and the billboards that you see along the freeway telling you to get aware? These are all over the United States because this is a broad spread problem throughout the country. Today's episode will give you some insight. Some of these comments are coming from panel discussions, some from interviews. You may hear background noise, but here we go. Brian Besser with the Drug Enforcement Administration talks a bit about the problem. Well, we just have this burgeoning heroin and opioid epidemic that is sweeping through the state right now, and it's claiming the lives of so many Utahns. You know, yet last year alone, we lost just under 500 Utahns to opioid-related overdose deaths. If we take a look at drug-related overdoses in general, we lost well over 600, and we're probably losing almost 50 Utahns a month to the opioid crisis. If we were losing that many individuals to firearms-related incidents or vehicle fatalities, We'd probably have people picketing up at the Capitol, wouldn't we? I spoke with a mom who had lost her child to an opioid overdose. Here's her story. My story starts um, around 2009. My 18-year-old son went to the doctor for uh, medication for a degenerative back disease. He was had just gotten a job with Home Depot and needed something for the pain while he was working. He'd graduated six months early and wanted to work for six months before he went to college. And the doctor, I, when he talked to me about it, I he, he asked how I felt and I said, I'm fine with it as long as you don't get Lortab. 
because my brothers were addicted to Lortab and I didn't want him to have to experience the same life that they had, which was very hard. And so he went to the doctor and came home with a bottle of Oxycontin, which I was happy because it wasn't Lortab, but I had no idea that Oxycontin was actually worse. How, how often do you think that the people who get started on these don't understand what the drug is or simply don't understand how addictive it is or think they'll just take a few? I mean, how, what do you think about that? I think that's very, very common. I think, I think it's better now. I think doctors are more aware as well. But I think that you trust your doctor when they give you a prescription and they give you 30 Lortab or 30 Oxycontin and you're supposed to take them you know, the way it's prescribed. When you do that, you could become addicted. Now me, I am allergic to opioids. I throw up. I don't take them. I can't take them. So I never really understood that, some, that this could happen to somebody and that quickly. So yeah, go on with your son's story. Okay, so after about six months of using Oxycontin, he was cut off by his doctor and he turned to heroin. And I knew this, I found out, I found this out that he had been struggling and I did whatever I could as a mom to stop it. Basically what I did is I, I did the logical thing, I locked my tin foil in the safe because that's what he smoked the Oxycontin on and to, or the heroin on and that's what made sense to me is if I lock this up he can't get it and he won't use not thinking 7-Eleven's a block away and that's the thing parents do they will do anything anytime to save their loved ones and I did some pretty crazy things including chasing down drug dealers and anything to stop this this from continuing he didn't like the addiction he wanted help he asked for help we put him through many treatments we went in debt a lot. Um, I bailed him out. I bailed him out a lot because I didn't want him to have a record. I didn't want him to have bad credit. He ended up with a record and bad credit. And it just goes to show that everything I did, nothing I did was helpful. All it did was help him continue to use. How long do you think, and this is probably different for everybody with their personal chemistry, but why was he on it for six months? He was working at Home Depot. And it and was the back the pain was just continual. Uh-huh. He has this. He has the same back disease that I have. I can manage my pain through physical therapy, and I've never taken anything stronger than Tylenol. So I don't they gave him oxycotton as a continual thing yes. to use to yes. modify that. Pain. As a teenager, he had the struggles with his back as well, and I I tried to control it with. Um, ibuprofen and physical therapy but once he turned 18 he decided I need something more and he went to a doctor on his own and I I was okay with that as long as he would not get the Lortab that's what I was so worried about they will prescribe Oxycontin as an ongoing they did now this was five years ago so today it might be a little bit different I think they are more careful but he was on it for a good six months and and maybe not quite six months. Maybe it was about four months because he did walk with his class and the addiction had already started and a couple months later is when it turned in. I think, I take that back, it may may have been around four months because he was buying Oxycontin off the street before heroin at $80 a pill. And And when that got too expensive, that's when he moved to heroin. So he continued to do the Oxycontin until he couldn't afford it anymore. And so how long did that last for him? He was in and out of treatment, on and off. He hated the addiction. He hated that. He, he, he wanted his life back. We wanted his life back. And we did everything as family members that we could to, to help him with this. And um, I found an organization called USERA, Utah Support Advocates for Recovery Awareness. And they had a family support group that was helpful to me. It taught me how to live with somebody that's struggling with a substance use disorder. They taught me how to communicate and interact in a positive way to help them engage into treatment. And I started making changes in my life. And when I started making those changes, he saw those changes and he began to change. He started seeking out his own treatment. And I believe that everybody has their own path to recovery. And I think they're much more successful when they choose that path. His path was medication-assisted treatment. He got on the medication called Vivitrol, a once-a-month injection. His only, um, I guess, I hate the word drug of choice, but his only drug of choice was heroin or opioids. So Vivitrol was a very good uh, medication for him because 
that's what it's used for. That's what it was used for. It, it blocks the cravings. And he did it work? That. It worked wonderful. And he used it for 13 months and did fantastic. But my mother passed away, life got in the way, and he went off the medication and a couple months later relapsed and relapsed pretty hard. But then again, that's when he got arrested. And when he called us from jail, he said, please set me up for a Vivitrol shot. I want to go back on Vivitrol. He knew that it worked. So straight from the hospital, because you have to detox 10 days off of any opioids before you get the Vivitrol injection. And so he had to be off for 10 days and he was in the, the jail for 10 days. So he was detoxed and ready to go. So he got the Vivitrol shot right when he got out and he was 150 days without using and he had talked his psychiatrist into letting him go off of it. And we didn't know this. We thought that because his life had gotten right back on track and he felt very strong, but he had a little hiccup and he hit a, a little roadblock and used. And we thought he was still on Vivitrol, but he was not. And he overdosed in our home. We found him in our bed, overdosed, and this was before naloxone or Narcan was available. And we did CPR, we did everything we could to save his life. The paramedics came, they worked on him, gave him the Narcan, and it was too late. And one of the things, I, I work with you, Sarah, now, and I help with the family support groups. We have 13 groups and nine different Utah counties right now to help support these parents that have nowhere to go, nowhere to turn, and that need that support. And so one of the things we do is every parent that walks through our door, every family member walks out with a Narcan kit and trained how to use it. panel discussion loaded with the heavy hitters, namely Sean Reyes, Utah's Attorney General, John Huber, U.S. Attorney for the District of Utah, Brian Besser, the DEA agent in charge of the Drug Administration in Utah, and Dr. Jennifer Plum from Utah Naloxone. Some pertinent questions were discussed. Bountiful Chief of Police Tom Ross, the moderator of the panel, starts out. There isn't anything that I talk about or deal with on a weekly basis in my profession that doesn't somehow touch on these issues. And because of that, it's incumbent on us as, as citizens of the state and as leaders to try to come up with better ways and, and maybe new ways of addressing these problems and issues. And at the same time, especially on the law enforcement side, although um, enforcement is very important, especially when you're talking about distribution and, and the amount and level of drugs coming into our state, having law enforcement be a partner in the treatment side and helping those that are suffering from these addictions and opioids and heroin understand that I'm not sitting here in judgment of you. you know, I, I learned a long time ago, in my first three years as an officer, I could, I could have been the person in the seat across from me. And as I came to grips with that reality, I have always looked at those that I'm talking to, victim or, or criminal alike, in a very different light. Dr. Jennifer Plum talks about the importance of efforts of different groups of people talking and working together to solve the problem. Where you would typically think that our worlds would intersect in the way that this crisis and, and in the different, you know, war on drugs is such a, a, a term of you know, kind of potential polarizing thing to say, but in our efforts to have a war on the impact of drugs is what I like to call it. Um, I've realized, yeah, I have a stethoscope and I have naloxone and I have ears and I have a heart and I don't have what these folks have, which is. You know, we live in different silos in the worlds that we live in. And I think through the past decades, we've stayed too siloed. And that has allowed a lot of harm to come from people not understanding each other's perspectives. When I got into this realm, I, I will admit wholeheartedly, I do almost in every lecture I do, that I thought law enforcement was going to be one of the biggest barriers that I would face in getting naloxone into people's hands and into empowering community members to save lives. And without a doubt, law enforcement, criminal justice, that system has been our biggest proponents, been our biggest kind of nudges forward to give us legitimacy and to allow folks to believe this is okay. 
and had that not happened, I think that these partnerships, not only would I have not benefited from that, but then perhaps on the management side, they wouldn't have benefited from hearing some of the more human uh, stories that I have to tell or that people in my shoes have to tell. So um, it's such an honor to be here, but also I think it's such a good telling sign of the direction that we need to be in. Utah's one of the few states that's actually experiencing decreases in its overdose death rates. And that is not due to any one effort in specific. That is due to an entire community being willing to, to jump in. Amber Baum stood on the stage at the Opioid Summit here today and shared with thousands of people the story of the loss of her daughter. When I spoke with her after, I got this personal retelling of her story. And my daughter's name is Mackenzie Baum. She went by Kenzie. Um, really just... Um, uh, my firstborn daughter, uh, very normal childhood, very happy little girl. She was almost like my twin in the regard that she loved to do everything I did. Um, even like we never argued about clothes because she liked to dress the way I dressed. And so we were extremely close. And, um, I've tried to think back many times. I think any parent that's lost a child to overdose, um, you think back over their childhood and you try to comb through every memory or everything that may have caused them to feel less than or traumatized. And so I've gone back to very early memories and um, try to kind of pinpoint, which I don't think you can, but it's something as a parent, if you've lost a child, you you almost compulsively do it. So... Um, Sure, you want answers. You want to understand. Yes. You want to put pieces together whether you can or not. Right, because if you understand it, it doesn't hurt so bad for some reason. You know what I mean? Well, it, it's how can you get anything bigger than this and yeah. and to just try to find answers. Yeah, and you know, I, I learned a lot of stuff about myself. This is my trauma threshold. She was just an adorable little girl. Everybody loved her. She was smart and witty and had a really crazy, kooky sense of humor. You know, she was just kind of a nut. Um, Squoze every minute, every second out of every day that she possibly could. I've never seen anybody have more fun than that child. I saw her picture. She was a beautiful girl. Look, sounds like she was very popular in school and had lots yes. of friends. And there was no... Um, like no social, no social issues. No. nothing like that. Very well no, acclimated never, to life. She never wanted for friends. She always had plenty of boyfriends. She got asked to the dances. Um, her father and I did uh, split up when she was about. Well, she was in sixth grade, and my other two kids were in second and first grade, and that did seem to hit her really, really hard. She was kind of an empath, and it was harder on her because she was older, for one thing, I believe, but it really kind of threw her for a loop. And she felt very connected to her dad, but her dad wasn't good for her. Um, he had struggled with his own demons, and I wasn't sure how much I should have them even interact with their dad. But anyway... When did, I, when did she start using? Um, so when Kenzie was 16... And I only know this because when she got out of treatment, she had written a, a drug history in a journal. And it actually gave me some peace of mind because I really wondered how it had started and and what age she started. So at 16, she had gone to a concert and she had, you know, drank 151 rum, she wrote in there, and then she'd smoked some marijuana and she had jumped up onto the stage and then fallen off and broken her arm. But she called her dad instead of me. And so her dad never told me. She came home with a broken arm and she said, well, we had, you know, we were in a car crash. She made up some crazy story. And anyway, I uh, I don't know that that would have made a difference. But anyway, she started using with, with alcohol and marijuana. And then she was a very anxious child and she was diagnosed with bipolar. And anyway, she, she was never calm. I'm not calm either, but she was really not calm. <laughs> and uh, so she went to a doctor and then they prescribed her Xanax even though she was, you know, not 18 quite yet, but she had pretty severe anxiety. So she started taking that and then um, then started also taking Oxycontins, but those were not prescribed. She got those from people's uh, medicine cabinets. She got them from friends. And she took those for, I think, about a year, and then it got to the point where she couldn't afford them anymore. They were 50 to $60 a piece, so the next best thing was heroin and it's bizarre now that I look back but I I would find pens that had no pen inside them and 
tinfoil that I wasn't sure what was going on with and my spoons kind of started disappearing. Anyway, now I know more and I know better so I could do better. But I didn't know then. And those are the kinds of things that I've always really wanted to push to the parents that, you know, if a kid's wearing long sleeves in the middle of summer, it might be something up. If you have to continually buy spoons and your forks and knives are never missing and you don't have kids small enough to be in a sandbox, that's also a sign. So, um, yeah, something that I, I kind of want to, I don't talk about this very often. So I, I kind of want to share this with you because it's important to me and it speaks to her life um, and kind of the legacy that she was able to leave even though she left the world in kind of a you know a, it's a sh- shameful place I I don't know how else to put it I, you feel so much shame you feel like you should have known everybody else is looking at it like how, why did you help them how couldn't you help them but um, when Kenzie when I found Kenzie and she was um, unresponsive and she was blue I started uh, CPR immediately and did she OD at home? Yes, at home. When I came into the house, I immediately knew something was wrong and mad dash down the stairs. And um, it was strange because the door was kind of ajar. And if anybody knows anybody or somebody about that uses heroin, they always lock the door. And most of them use in the bathroom. But this, the door was ajar a little bit, so I kicked it. And there she was, her sweet little face, just the most beautiful girl. She was leaned over the bathtub and her face was blue. And I just patted her little face and said, Mackenzie, Mackenzie, what have you done? And um, rolled her over. The needle was still in her arm. Um, and we started doing CPR. And uh, my then husband came down and he took over CPR because I was just sobbing. And I went upstairs and kind of just paced back and forth on the cement, you know, on the sidewalk, waiting for the emergency crews to come, screaming down the stairs occasionally. Is she alive? Is she breathing? Is she alive? Is she breathing? Well, they finally came and took her and she went to American Fork Hospital first and um, they had shocked her and done the whole thing trying to bring her back but it wasn't working so they were helping her breathe when we got to American Fork Hospital they transferred her to Utah Valley and it was such a surreal experience for me because I still thought she was going to sit up because she was such a jokester and such a character I kept thinking she's going to sit up and be like ha ha I got you guys you know and we walked in and even when the ICU doctor, so they transferred us to Utah Valley. Now I know they transferred us there because that's the only hospital in Utah County that can do organ donations. Still did not know what was going on. And I went in and this kind, kind ICU, uh, the head of the floor, uh, his name was Dr. Bishop. I'll never forget it. I've been back to visit him twice. I try to go back every Valentine's Day because I know they're at work and I take them cookies. But um he came straight to me and said, are you Mackenzie's mom? And I said, yeah. And he said, I am a straight shooter and I believe in being honest with you. And um, you will never see your little girl that way she was. She's, she's not going to wake up, Amber. And still in my head, I thought, you do not know this kid. I mean, if there is a way she can get us, then she will. And he said, Amber, you're going to have to start making really quick decisions. They're going to come fast. You're going to be confused, but you've got to really try to focus here. And I was like, okay. So I sat down and here came in the organ donation team. And that's when I went, oh shit, maybe she's not going to make it, you know? And I sat there and I cried and cried. And I can remember the shoes I was wearing. I remember a drop of my tears dropping right into one of my, I had those retro vans, dropped right in a square of, on my shoe. And I remember thinking, I am never going to forget this feeling. It's never going to go away. And I'll be honest. I mean, my life has never been the same. Uh, There was life before Mackenzie died and life after. And it has been a devastating walk of unimaginable emotions and, and really such deep, deep depressions that I wondered if I would ever be able to come out of them. It took me about two years before I really did anything. I went to work and I would come home. And that was it. I was in, the, in bed all weekend. I could not make myself do anything. How did you survive? How did you? I get had out to of go that? to work. I had to go to work, and that kept me so that I got out of bed every day. But on the weekends, I would stay in bed Friday and Saturday, and I wouldn't move except for to go to the bathroom. I just had no desire to live. I had just lost my daughter. I have two other kids, and I never would, you know, take some kind of an action to lose or you know, in uh, my life. But I had the thought all the time, if I just didn't wake up, I mean, how can this hurt so bad? 
how can this hurt this bad? And I will never forget. I sat up in bed one night and this sound came out of my mouth that you can't even imagine. And the only way I could describe it later, uh, a few days later, I thought, you know, that is what wailing is. I sat up and I wailed because I missed my daughter. It was just more than a human being should be expected to endure, especially when you've struggled with them for five years to get them clean. You finally have your child back. I had her for about 40 days. Her eyes were clear. I got to make some wonderful memories with her, but it just seemed like an evil little trick from God. Here is your daughter so that you can remember what she was, and now I'm going to take her from you. Um, it was just almost more than I could handle. The one thing that I, I take a little bit of solace in is that, you know, when the organ donation came, team came in, I didn't think I could give her organs. I just didn't think I could. I thought it would affect the way that I saw her for the rest of my life. But I had kind of a moment of clarity and I decided that I would donate all of her organs except for her eyes. I just, I could not imagine them taking those beautiful eyes out of that beautiful face. So um, they did the test and everything in her body, every organ was pristine. Don't ask me how, but she was able to save nine people's lives. You know, I have a letter from the lady who got her liver. Her name's Beth. I cannot, I want my daughter here. Don't get me wrong. But if there's anybody more deserving than Beth to continue on her life with her two little boys, I would be hard pressed to find them. So that's a beautiful thing to hold on to. It is right. And the part of your daughter is still alive. Is alive on the earth. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've had a couple of other people reach out to me. Um, both of her lungs went to separate people and, but you know, I, I need to find a, a better word. A blessing is not a word that could ever come out of something like this. I would call it a, a deeper understanding of life mm. and love and just really how deeply someone can love. And with that grade of love for a child comes deep, deep loss when you lose them. What has helped me is that I, uh, I started a, a nonprofit called Overdose Awareness Utah, and I have helped four or five moms now bury their children. They call me and I help them through the process and the things that I've learned, hey, you know, you might want to do this. And I know you don't want a picture of your child in the casket you think right now, but I'm, I'm telling you, you might. I want you to think about that. Let's think about... Um, you know, getting a thumbprint. Let's take some pictures of your hands together. Things that I didn't think about. Um, it gives me some solace and uh, um, it just makes me feel connected because these other moms are going through the same thing that I went through. And we form a, a bond that I have never had with anybody else ever. The Addicts Mom, I'm the Utah State chapter of that. We have about 300 members now. And I would say roughly half of them have lost their children. And it shows me the deep need for grief groups and grief counseling for people who have lost a child to substance use passing. Would there you, are not any. Would you like people to be able to contact you about these services? Oh, you know what? If you have a child that's struggling with addiction, you will never find a better group of women more helpful. They know the ins and outs of jail. They All their kids have had all these issues. It's called the Addicts Mom Utah Chapter. We are a family. Facebook. It's solely on Facebook. It's a national organization with about 30,000 moms. They just went to the Fed Up rally. They're very involved with um, legislation and trying to change the way things are done. But it's it saved my life. I wish I would have had it while Kenzie was in her addiction. I didn't find it. I found it afterwards. But it has been every bit as good for me after the fact to know I'm not alone. It helps people so much. Back on the panel, Brian Besser talks about the Utah communities and the involvement of the shame stigma in the fight with addiction and the transition from pills to heroin. Well, this is definitely a variegated subject. I've bounced around, you know, the country for the last 25 years, and each state has its own unique issues, right? I was talking about this in an interview just a little bit ago, in fact. Uh, We had a press conference just a few minutes ago. And Utah's greatest strengths 
um, oftentimes can be its greatest weaknesses. What do I mean by that? Um, and this is not an indictment, it's an observation from someone you know coming out from outside of Utah. Um, Utahns have, for some reason, a, uh, they have a prescription pill problem. We, we do here in Utah, that's what we're calling it out. Um, America, sadly, has an insatiable appetite for drugs. That's a sad reality. You know, we're only 5% of the world's population, but we consume over 25% of all the drugs in the world. We consume 99% of all the world's hydrocodone. Think about that. So we're a little out of control when it comes to the drugs. Getting back to my comment about Utah, we are a uh, faith-based society. We are a family-values-based society. Those are strong pluses. But they also, if you flip that coin, when you have communities like that, the shame stigma can be great. There's a price to pay if uh, you err, so to speak, and you end up falling uh, inadvertently into addiction. So what I see oftentimes, I tell people, you know, with Utahns, drugs that come in a baggie, your cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, those are naughty, we're good people, we don't do those. But drugs that come in a bottle with a doctor's prescription on them, uh, a little bit different. Those are oftentimes voraciously consumed in the home, and that is what I see. That is why the cartels have taken a vested interest in the state of Utah. They're not gonna dump their good quality heroin in a place where it's not gonna get used. They're gonna put their good quality product in a place it's gonna get chowed down. It's just that simple. 80% of our heroin users started with what? Prescription pills. That's exactly right. And then we've had the advent of counterfeit fentanyl tableting operations, which has really kicked this thing into high gear. Because now, if you can't get your legitimate pills, you drive to the street to get your pills when you think they're a legitimate pharmaceutical grade pill, and it's not. It's garbage binder laced with fentanyl or heroin, and you're rolling the wheel when you take the pill, and an extremely deadly, deadly scenario. Attorney General Sean Reyes talks about the role trust plays in the escalation of this public health crisis. Utah's a very trusting community. And because we trust so much, we trusted our physicians who for decades trusted the medical research that they relied on that, frankly, opioid manufacturers manufactured. They, they were deceptive. And so that chain of trust, unfortunately, led a whole generation of us and our loved ones to inadvertently become uh, addicted to pain pills. And trust is a good thing, but it makes us vulnerable sometimes uh, to you know, positions of authority, we say, well, I wouldn't think twice about that. And I think in another conversation, we have to ask ourselves hard questions about what we expect and demand from pain management as patients and as a community. With all the bad news that you talked about in the increase, the good news for Utah is that deaths related to opioid overdoses did go down from 16 to 17. Some of that's we were so high to begin with um, that, wow, I mean, uh, as exciting as a 20% decrease is, we still know we have a lot of work to do. Are you wondering what has been done on the law enforcement side of things? When John Huber was asked about the balance he finds between all of these areas of approaching the war on drugs, he clearly states that his focus is not on balance. His focus is on getting the bad guys. Well, there's no balance in my game. It's not a balance. It's uh, pedal to the metal on law enforcement. I'm serious. I don't, I don't know how to treat people. I'm not a social worker. I'm a trained and experienced prosecutor, and that's who I work with. I work with special agents and law enforcement officers. And, you know, it's, uh, it's not the answer, but it's one of the answers, law enforcement. And uh, you talk about enforcement, prevention, rehabilitation. Uh, that's kind of a three-legged stool that we're talking about here to help bring the death rates down. And that is my main motivation given directly from the president to the attorney general to me at a table where I was three feet away from the attorney general telling me and other U.S. attorney leaders, you need to bring the death rates down, everything in your power. Well, the things that are in my power are law enforcement. And so I've, I've talked with uh, treatment professionals and uh, Surprisingly, in one setting, uh, they were offended at that approach. Um, and I guess I can see maybe what you're talking about. We don't want to punish addicts for being addicts, but that's not what I'm talking about. The cases that Special Agent Besser and I bring are not against addicts. 
bear against huge distributors. And if we can affect access to the drugs, if we can affect the price of the drugs, if we can affect the risk in engaging in this underworld, then we are making a difference in the number of people who will begin to use it or continue to use it. And stem, hopefully, the tide of drugs that flow over our highways every day. Right now, there are literally hundreds of pounds of drugs traveling on I-70, I-15, and I-80. Our troopers are doing the best they can to find them. And they find them really well. They do a great job. But it's just the tip of the iceberg. And it goes back to this appetite that we have in this country, which is a deeper societal issue that is part of this summit today. Why? Do we have such a desire that profiteers are happy to take advantage of, that cartels are happy to take advantage of? We want to make it difficult on those profiteers and those cartels, those international organizations. It sounds scary and far off, but Special Agent Besser and his partners, and it's been referenced uh, you know, vaguely here, Conwood Heights, basement, 20-something-year-olds, smart kids, uh, some of them LDS backgrounds, otherwise good homes. And uh, they're able to set up shop and distribute huge amount of drugs, leading to what we believe are dozens of actual deaths. So pedal to the metal, there's no balance in this for me. Uh, we're going to go hard and heavy as we can against the biggest targets we can, and hopefully affect access, price, and risk. And in doing that, enforcement becomes prevention. Attorney General Reyes talks about the success Utah is seeing. We've been working collaboratively, and law enforcement has changed its paradigm about viewing this as merely an incarceration uh, situation, um, a, a law enforcement issue. We have started to accept as society that it's a, a public health crisis. Our president has declared that. He's deployed assets. Um, we understand it's a disease, and so hopefully we'll treat it like other diseases, like if somebody contracts cancer, is dealing with that. Brian talked about eliminating judgment and shame, letting people be honest to come out and uh, dialogue and get resources that they need. All of those things, I think, are starting to help us in Utah see a change. And I don't know if you all realize, but a couple weeks ago, the White House actually highlighted Utah as the example for the rest of the nation on how to attack these things. And it's because of what John Huber is doing in his office, because of what Brian Besser is doing in his office, and frankly, the Department of Health and all other partners that we have coming together. And they say, what is it in Utah? There's something special. And um, that's what this conference was about for us when we created it, that in spite of all the bad news, and there were some really ugly, raw stories. There were 40 mothers and fathers on the stage earlier today talking about losing their children within the last couple of years. And the most horrific part of some of that was they could see that this was happening and they couldn't access resources or laws prevented them from getting the help that they needed. And they could watch like a train wreck their loved ones shrivel up and eventually um, pass away. <clears throat> this conference is about hope, connecting ourselves as a community, connecting our agencies, connection. It's called Instead because we wanted to talk about everybody has something they're passionate, they want to love and live life about. Um, instead of being addicted, let us choose life instead of, uh, of death. Those are the themes that we emphasized together as partners, um, eliminate shame, let's get connected as a community, and let's make sure every person, whether they're children that are youth that listened earlier or you all, to know that you're not alone, you have a community of family behind you, and that you should never feel so isolated, that death is a better alternative, or that you, um, that you can't uh, access resources. We're, we're, we want to help you with that. So long, long answer, Chief, but that's, that's why I believe Utah is bucking the trend and seeing a continuum of hope while the rest of the nation is really right now gripped with this the, the, the carnage and the devastation of, of the opioid addictions. 
Back at home, this is why we are fighting the war. Uh, my name is Tina College, and my son is Casey College, and he passed away on December 31st, 2017. Um, Casey was my oldest child, spunky little stinker, always has so much energy and full of love. How old was he? He, um, His birthday was on the 25th of December, so he had just turned 26, and then he passed away on the 31st. Um, he had struggled, started struggling with addiction, um, around the age of 15, was struggling in school, kind of turned to that kind of thing. And that kind of went from there. Um, he, we kind of Do you know what drugs he started using? Um, Was there a gateway drug? He started just with marijuana. I shouldn't say just marijuana, but yeah, he started with marijuana. As far as I know, I don't really know a whole lot about pills until later on more into his addiction um once we started going through counseling together and treatment and doing things like that that's when I learned more so unfortunately for probably the first year that he was even using did you know he was using probably not for the first year no I think so he started when he was 15 I didn't really know until about two months before his 16th birthday so Nine months in. What drugs did he end up being involved with all the way Unfortunately, at the very end, it was um, meth and heroin. So, um, and he had gotten into meth and heroin. Well, not heroin. He got into meth when he was around 18, um, got into some trouble with the law, and we had went through that battle going back and forth of, you know, him being in jail and, and in treatment. We put him in many, many treatment things. Um, and then he finally went to a treatment that was for, um, 120 days that we absolutely loved and felt really comfortable with him being there. He was only there with a couple other clients. And so it was really close to home for him, um, cause he had really close interaction with the therapist and so that was so really hands-on personalized work yeah and it was real like they had to do shopping they had to cook they you know and they got to find them who who they were um at that point I was kind of a mess and I was going through Al-Anon and doing those types of things and I think at that point is where I realized that I wasn't in control of anything that he was doing And I couldn't control what he was doing. And I just made the decision that all I was going to do was just love him. Love him to death, basically. I wanted to love him enough that he would love himself. Because he, seriously, was... He taught me so much in his short time that he was here. So much. What did he teach you? I think the very most important thing that he taught me was unconditional love and... Um, the beauty in everybody that he loved everybody it didn't matter who they were it didn't matter if they were a bishop of a church it didn't matter if they were a drug addict or he loved everybody and he found the good in everybody and that was one thing that I still can say to this day that I feel like he's my angel in that because I try so hard every day just to be grateful for what we have and to be grateful that we had him for the time that we did because you know I mean I can't I can't bring him back to us but um I feel like there's there was so much shame in the fact that um that I felt so guilty and shameful for his addiction and he never, ever made me feel that way. He always just loved me and was so grateful that I loved him through it all. So, What, what was his experience like? Through his drug addiction? Yeah. yeah, so it sounds like there was about 10 years. It was very painful. He, um, during his time that he was clean, he was happy and family-oriented, always wanted to be with us and do, doing things as a family and things like that. But then when he was down in the dirt, he was down and he did not love himself or anybody else. But I tell you what, one thing that he always did, even till the day that 
the night before he died. He always, always let me know that he was alive when he was in his addiction. So he had relapsed. He was with us for a whole week at Christmas with our with our family. It was the best Christmas we've had in so long because we got to spend so much quality time with him. And then he relapsed on the 28th of December. And he called me and told me that he relapsed and he kept in touch with me until Saturday night. And he died on a Sunday morning. And every day it was just, I love you and thank you for never giving up on me. And did, he, I, did he know he was going to die? Part of me feels like he did at this point. He had been in trouble and had been in treatment for, he was clean for almost two years, relapsed in October and um, had to go to prison for 60 days. And he told me on Christmas that he would die before he ever went back there. And so when he called me on the 28th, I knew, I knew that he wasn't going back there and I knew where he was going to go. Like in my heart, sadly. What did you do? I just prayed and prayed and prayed and talked to him every day for those four days. But by the time Saturday came, I knew it was just, it was too much. Like, I shouldn't say I knew it was too much. It was too much for him to handle. But he had plans to go on Sunday morning. He was supposed to go to a sober living in Ogden. And I kind of was hopeful Saturday. I was kind of hopeful that that was still going to happen. But, yeah, he didn't make it there. So where did he die? How did you find out about it? Um, he died in Orem at um, my ex-husband's sister's house. Sadly, she's an addict as well. And um, yeah, that's where he died with five people there with him during that time. Were they using with him or was he hiding out to use or? Um, I'm pretty sure that they were all using, yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, me too. And I'm sorry for everybody that's have to go through this. Yeah. And I keep thinking to myself, you know, trying to be involved in these things now as much as it's painful to me that it, if we can just help one other mom not go through this. Just one. Parting advice for potential addicts that are listening to this or for parents? Um, for parents, I say don't give up on your kids and make sure that they know that you love them. Because I think, it, sadly, in their addiction, they think that they are horrible people and that nobody cares about them and it's not going to matter if they're here or not here. So for parents, I say that was mine, and it's still my motto, to still love them until they love themselves. For, for the addicts, yeah, just reach out to people. There's so many people that care about them. And I think that they would be surprised how many people really love and care, care about them and are a listening ear, you know. And there's a lot of things now. There's so many pro programs and things that they can get into that they can reach out for help, so... After the panel, I spoke with Jennifer Plum about her work in the medical realm and with naloxone. I, uh, in July of 2015, co-founded an organization with my brother, Sam, uh, called Utah Naloxone. And this was in response to our naloxone access laws that had been passed in Utah 2014, uh, with the hope that we could get the overdose reversal agent naloxone into people's hands so that folks who were overdosing could be saved. And can, you, can you tell the listeners specifically what that is? Yeah. So naloxone is, it's one of those pretty amazing substances. It has one job. You cannot get high with it. You cannot relieve pain with it. You cannot get addicted to it. You cannot overdose on it. It is only what they call an, an antagonist. So its only job is to reverse an opioid overdose. We have used it in ERs and ORs and ambulances um, since 1971. It's not a new substance. But programs in places like Chicago and Oakland and uh, New York started putting it into people's hands in the late 90s and demonstrated that we could save lives, especially in populations 
populations who were nervous to call 911, populations who weren't comfortable um, perhaps reaching out for the traditional medical system help because they were worried about legal ramifications. So there's value in putting into the hands of families who have known opioid addicts within or their family. actively using uh, members of our communities. My brother died in 1996 of a heroin overdose and his friends at the time um, were using with him and when he overdosed they panicked. They didn't call 911. Uh, they hoped that he would come back around and they were worried. Had they had naloxone, you know, I have no doubt at least on that day that he would not have died. Um, now would that have saved him forever? Of course that's way too much to ask but I, I have no doubt that that day he would have survived. And so family members that know folks uh, in their communities or their families that are at risk of opioid overdose, that means people who are actively using, that means people who are in recovery, that means people who take chronic pain meds, that means kids who are around in the homes of all of these. One opioid pill can take out a kid. Should all be, I think, prepared with naloxone like they are prepared with a fire extinguisher. So how do people get it? So in Utah, we passed the laws in 2014 that made it legal to prescribe it and you could go get it at a pharmacy. We thought, okay, this is a great start, right? It's going to be like a flu shot. You can go get it. Except that it's not that simple. There's a lot of stigma. There's a lot of shame. Right now, then, we went back in 2016 to make it legal so that opioid out, oh, excuse me, opioid overdose outreach providers could give naloxone to anyone they deemed either at risk or at risk of witnessing. So you can't save yourself from an overdose. Somebody else has to be prepared. So it didn't have to be a medical personnel. Exactly. It could be anyone. And so now, that's what Utah Naloxone's goal has been, is to get naloxone in as many places that are comfortable for community members. Now, Salt Lake County, for example, all 18 of their libraries have naloxone kits that people can go get. Um, we have EMS providers who will leave uh, kits on scene after a reversal. We do active outreach within communities, be that homeless populations or very nice neighborhoods where there's a lot of community members at risk that folks are concerned about. We educate law enforcement officers. We have 65 um, law enforcement agencies that now are carrying naloxone so that they can potentially save a lot life before EMS even gets there. Can you share a story about using it that you have been a part of personally? Oh, gosh. You know, I, I, as an ER doc, I've used it more times than I could even count. Those probably aren't the interesting stories because that happens every day across American ERs. Um, probably for me, the most interesting story came when I was very early on in these naloxone efforts and I was downtown taking my son to a class and there was some ruckus going on to the side of us. We were stopped at a stoplight and uh, people were screaming, please help her please help her and I flipped my car around to help her and it turned out she was experiencing an overdose and I had a naloxone kit in my purse I, this was literally in the first couple of months of these efforts we didn't have a lot of naloxone yet is it a shot? uh huh it's an injection there is a nasal form but uh, the kits I distribute are, are shots and her friend said she's overdosing and I recognized the signs her, pu pu pimple, or excuse pupils? Me, her pupils were tiny tiny little pinpoint pupils which is what happens in opiate overdose she was blue she was not breathing and even though I had been an ER doc for years I was nervous. Am I going to hurt this person? Am I doing the right thing? I'm out on the street in a dress and heels and here we are helping this woman. And she got a dose of naloxone and I started to see her breathe, but she wasn't up talking. About three minutes later, she got a second dose and she sat right up and looked at me and said, where's my sunglasses? Wow. And I, wow. The, for the first time in my life, I truly felt like, and I've saved many lives or been involved with people saving many lives in the air. For the first time, I felt like had I not been in this spot at this time. At that exact moment. At that moment, at that red light that we might not have had her and it was for me kind of that moment of the there is no reason that a first responder has to be a doctor or an EMT or a cop. First responder means first person there. That can be mom, that can be dad, that can be friend, that can be community outreach worker, that can be stranger, that can be cop, that can be anyone. First responder means first person there. And it was kind of that increased, I guess, oomph that I needed to see that we had to do this. We had to equip people. Um, and since that time, so since July 2015, we've gotten out over 36,000 free kits across the state of Utah. And we're aware nice of- Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah. It, well, it, we're aware of over 2,500 reversals, 2,500 times it's been used by non-medical people to save lives, which is both amazing to me and terrifying. Wow. Terrifying that in just over three years, 2,500 times that I know of, I'm certain there's more, but 2,500 times that I know of people have had to step in and save somebody's lives. So I'm so grateful that they are prepared and ready, but I'm also terrified that that's necessary. So so you're spending a lot of your time, you're an active ER doctor, uh -huh. but a lot of your time pushing this particular thing, Absolutely. trying to get it out into people's hands. Yeah, and as a part of that, also, you know, helping educate our community entities 
these are agencies that naloxone is not going to fix this crisis, right? But it's going to keep people alive. And while I'm hoping that communities continue to work on keeping folks alive, we need to set up the treatment resources. We need to set up the structure of the system that will not just keep abandoning people to go down this path again and again and again. So um, I've been really lucky to be able to be in, in rooms at sometimes uncomfortable tables with folks who don't come from a world that I come from or from thinking like I come from. But we won't win these battles by just saying they don't think like me. I won't talk to them. We will only make changes by being willing to educate each other and learn from each other and sometimes saying, you know, I don't see it that way, but thank you for sharing. It has to be an open conversation because there are so many different, like like we did today with law enforcement and medical personnel. and Well, like when I was uncomfortably but willing to say, you know, to the attorney general or to the U.S. attorney, excuse me, I hear what you're saying. You want to investigate death scenes, but we have to make sure we don't discourage people from calling 911 by being too heavy about that. And, and I think we can respectfully have those dialogues and we can hear from each other. We have to. Otherwise, there's not enough collaboration. Right, right. Absolutely. So if people want to get a hold of that, mm-hmm. listeners thinking, right. I, I want that, where do they get it? Utah Naloxone, our website, so it's just utahnaloxone.org. They can contact us through there if they're in a community where they're not sure where to get it. Um, if they do happen to be in Salt Lake County, it's in all of the Salt Lake County libraries. Is it covered by insurance? It is covered by insurance. Um, but some folks are not comfortable having that, quote unquote, on their record. So um, many are. If they are, I can call in prescriptions or there are pharmacies where you don't need a prescription. Um, On our website, there's a pharmacy locator as well. Um, And if people are in a geographic area where they don't know how to find it or there maybe isn't an option for them, we will find a way to get a kit to them. Thanks, Dr. Plum. You're very welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. As we wrap up, one of the moms, Darlene Schultz, leaves us with a tool. Okay, our organization is USERA, Utah Support Advocates for Recovery Awareness, and we're a recovery community organization. We have two recovery community centers in Utah, one in Salt Lake City and one in St. George. Our recovery community centers offer many, many resources, not just for the family members. We have our family support group, our craft family support group, but we also have many other services as well. We have peer coaching, peer coaches that people can come in and meet with peer coaches and to help them through with their, their substance use disorder. We have meetings, at least two different meetings every single day, seven days a week offered for uh, those that need that kind of support. We also have an ARCHES team, uh, Addiction Recovery Coaching in Healthcare and Emergency Settings. And this is a team of trained peer coaches that are all in recovery themselves that go into the emergency rooms and meet with people that have struggled with an addiction somehow or overdosed, and they make that connection because the opposite of addiction is connection. How busy are you guys? Very busy. We're actually, our Arches team um, are are ready to hire on new people. They're uh, 24-7 on call, and they're getting calls all of the time. So for any of the listeners who know that they're addicted in whatever stage, in the beginning, or um, are users of heroin or opioids of any type, or they're farther down that line, or they're in between recovery, um, any of these people can call you for more information or support, correct? Absolutely. They can call the, the centers open every day from 9 to 5, I believe, they take calls, but they're open most most of the time till about eight o'clock at night running meetings so they could drop in any day they could drop in or they could call to get the services there's always a friendly face waiting for them and the one thing I wanted to say if I can say this um, my son went to a lot of treatment he went to a lot of counselors and when he came to USARA for the very first time and he met with our, our director Mary Jo McMillan he walked out and I asked him how did that go and he said that was the first time I wasn't treated like a piece of crap and those were his exact words and he felt good he felt listened to he felt he was treated with kindness which is something he wasn't used to Utah stands as an example as a state who has excellent collaboration between families, politicians, law enforcement, and medical professionals who care and are banding together to take on this crisis of addiction that so often begins with prescription pills. 
Now, not everyone understands it and not everyone in the medical profession is on board or even understands necessarily what they're up against. But there are enough people in these key groups that are trying to band together, trying to educate and trying to work for the alleviation of this that Utah is standing out as an example for other states to follow. Our death toll here in Utah has decreased this year due to these efforts, and all are hoping to keep up this trend. If you or someone you love is caught in this crisis, in this story of drug addiction and overdosing and death, I will have the recommended organizations and contact information in the show notes on the website at www.loveyourstorypodcast.com. And I thank the moms who are willing to share their stories here on the show today, to, who were willing to share their hearts and their advice. Thank you, the listener, for being here today. And if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And if you know someone who needs to listen to this episode, share the love, share the love, pass it along to as many people that could use an education in this topic or would like to hear more about it, or maybe are dealing with something and could use the resources. We'll see you next week on the Love Your Story podcast.